And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And, uh, you know, uh, I tell you this every single time we do this program, that we come your way on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times. At richarddugan.com, we have podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry. And we're also on YouTube with videocasts, ladies and gentlemen, so that you can watch our interviews. You can see our guests. And if you want, you can see me too. But the guest and the subject matter are the most important thing and what we want to talk about today. Uh, we also encourage you to go to our guest website, which we'll be giving you shortly, so that you can continue your evolutionary process, your transformational process. And we also want to let you know that um, you can support this broadcast uh, financially. And that's why we have PayPal and Patreon accounts for your security as well as ours. Uh, so that you can support us. If this resonates with you, please do so. Uh, if it does not, I would not expect you to, but maybe you could send us some good energy. We'll take it. And, you know, we can use all the help that we can get. And uh, also, please participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. Go within, spend some time, find that still, quiet, small, uh, uh, peaceful place where you can re-energize and, and refocus your attention and, and relax and, and rejuvenate, recharge those batteries, as it were. Also, listen to that still small voice that is guiding you, wants to guide you every day. Please do what you can to listen to it, follow the promptings, and again, find that quiet place. With that being said, we're going to find something else today. That's right. Because we are going to... Hopeland. No, it has nothing to do with Bob Hope. Oh, you don't know who Bob Hope is? Google it. But today we're going to go to a place called Hopeland. We're going to find hope. It's the book entitled Finding Hope, a mother's, uh, a birth mother's journey into the light. And my guest is Hope Baker. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Richard, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Um, I like the, the concept of Hopeland. I think it's very creative, uh, especially considering it's what we really, really need uh, for, for these days. Um, and the thing is, is that it's, it's the one thing that stands out more than anything else, no matter what we're facing, uh, you know, whether it's a pandemic or, you know, you've injured yourself in some other way, or it's a, an earthquake, a hurricane, a fire, a flood, Tsunami, pestilence, um, <laughs> pillaging. All the above. <laughs> all of the above. We need hope. And hope is the one thing that gets us through. Now, um, there's a quote here in your book. For all of the women and men uh, out there who are going through a hard time, and boy, there are a lot of people who are, I, being uh, you, hope, uh, I believe in your pain and in your strength, and we can all do this. We will find our light. Uh, you, and and I, I, I find it difficult to talk about some of the things that we talk about anymore because of the cliches that only in eight months have been overused. And it drives me crazy, you know? I, I'm, I'm, I got to get a new lexicon. To, to find new words to use, to find new words to use. But the reality is, and this is something that I find interesting, I would love for your take on this. 
we all share the same emotions. Mm -hmm. It's the stories that make us unique, but the emotions are all the same. And with what you went through, I would say the same thing, that your story is what sets you apart and what you did sets you apart. But you and I, we both experience heartbreak and sadness and frustration and grief and joy and love and happiness as well. Talk to us about your, your, your sojourn, if you will. Oh, by the way, I liked what one of my guests said about his particular work, his quest. I love that quest. word. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I call it my journey, right? <laughs> because what else is it other than that? Um, you know, I, I like that you say that we all have emotions because we do. And I think at times we get so caught up in our own pain and, and we feel like it's so unique, which it is to ourselves. But every single person in this world at any given time is feeling pain. Now, that might not be the same pain, but we've all felt it. And, and I think it's so important to first acknowledge that I think a lot of times people are telling you, you know, get over it, or it could be worse. That's my least favorite thing in the world to hear. Like it could be worse, but for that person, that could be the worst, like what's happening in their life could be the worst thing. So I just, I've always tried to acknowledge with my journey and just speaking with other people that pain is pain and your pain and my pain, we can't compare the two, but we can find a commonality that we're both in pain and we're mm -hmm. not alone. And when I started to share my story, because there was a time when I hid it, I put it deep down and I hid that part of my life, that painful part and put on a smiley face and, you know, tried to get over it and move on like I was told to. Um, and I, and I quickly realized that first off, you can't, that's not possible. It's not possible to not, to just ignore your pain. And second off, I wasn't alone. Although I was living this lonely life, like there are so many people in this world that have are have placed children for adoption. You know, that's what my book is about. And mm -hmm. there are so many other people who are going through the same thing I'm going through right now. And I'm not alone. They're not alone. Like, why don't we get together and try to support each other and figure out how do we work through this pain? Because although once again, everybody's pain is different. Pain is pain at the end of the day. Pain right. is pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, what I find interesting about your story uh, is that you made a conscious choice for whatever reasons uh, to, and if, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, to give your infant son a better life. Is that was that the main reason or were, were there other reasons? Was it the stigma of, of having a child maybe out of wedlock or what have you? Uh, what were the main reasons why you made that choice? Yeah. So the big piece of that, you know, when I put myself at 21 years old and mind you, by the time my mom was 21, she had three kids. She'd been married. Like she was, you know, but for me in my own life, I was a college student I was, you know, a bartender with five bucks in my bank account. And although I know that I've always been a driven person at that time, you know, and a therapist once told me this, you made the best decision you could with the information you had at the time. 
You were a woman in crisis, you made the best decision. So when I look back, I think that it's twofold, right? I felt my son deserved a better life. He deserved opportunity. And at that time, I didn't feel like I could provide him with that opportunity that he deserved. I couldn't, and, and that's how I felt. And then on the same token, I wasn't ready to be a mom in that state. Like in my own life, I wasn't ready. I was in college. I just didn't feel like I was mature enough to do it. And I didn't think I could do it. And I, you know, fortunately or unfortunately at the time had a lot of people who agreed with me, who didn't think I could do it either. didn't think I was ready. And, and I think we get, you know, we always listen to what other people say and we take it so you know, hard, right? If somebody says one thing to you once, at least my mind works like this. I'll think about it 10 years down the road. I'm like, you remember that one time you said that to me? <laughs> now I still think about it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think it once again, so it was twofold. Yes, he deserved a better life, but I also thought that I wasn't ready and I still wanted to provide opportunity for myself as well. And I know that at times when you say that out loud, like people see adoption and, and birth mothers and, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of bad raps. Like they think, oh, you know, they are addicts, all these different things and, you know, whatever. There's a lot of bad judgment for birth mothers. But then there's also this view that you gave a gift to another person. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, a lot of people think that I hear that all the time what a gift I could give to this woman. And you may even think that, I mean, my own family sometimes says it and I'm like, guys, like let's pedal that back because first off, my son is not a commodity. He's not a, you know, a present I put under the Christmas tree. He's not a gift. He's a person. He's a human. And on top of that, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't just about him. It was about me too. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are the things you're not supposed to say, but I, you know, I've never been one to shy away from, from saying the truth. And I, and the more birth mothers I meet, the more say, yes, it it was about them as well and their future and them not being ready and them wanting a chance as well for opportunity. And, you know, once you allow yourself to say that out loud, and I know there's, there's always judgment. Mm -hmm. I get sometimes nasty DMs when I talk about this and, but for a birth mother to be able to say her truth, her truth, it's, it's insane the weight that's lifted off your shoulders, right? Being able just to say and not be afraid of who's going to judge you. I don't care if somebody is going to judge me. You know what? Gosh, I finally am able to say the things I've wanted to say for seven years. And I finally am just saying them and it's freeing. Freeing. Yeah. Let me ask you now, this was an open adoption, correct? Yes. So do you currently have a relationship with your son at any level right now? Yes. So my son is seven and I glance over because I've, I've got pictures on my desk of him. Um, I actually spoke to his mom today. Um, I, you know, called her to ask what's on his Christmas list. <laughs> right? ah, so there you go. So yeah. So it's very open. I mean, we go through our seasons as every, as everybody does when we first met each other, my son's mom, his adoptive mom. I've always called her his mom because she is his mom, right? I'm his mom too, but she's his mom as well. So when we started the adoption process and we met and we're putting a plan together, it was so interesting because I thought I wanted more closed and not necessarily closed, but like less openness. And she was like, 
I want all the openness. And then we kind of flip-flopped, right? After he was born, I was all of a sudden like, hold on. I need him. I need to see him. I need to smell him. I need to hear, you know, the first words. I need to see all these things. And then she was like, well, hold on. I need to see, like, I need to be his mom. And so we kind of flip-flopped. But I think, you know, open adoption is in my view, the only way adoption should be done. I don't believe in closed adoption. And I think the adoption community, if it's hard to find closed adoptions that are happening now, unless it's for like intense safety reason, court ordered safety reasons, I get that. Mm -hmm. But now in present day, it's hard to find a non-open adoption. So I get to see my son two to three times a year. Um, He can call me whenever he wants to. I, you know... I get pictures of him every month. So, and his mom and I communicate it's there's new struggles that come with that freeing feeling. I was telling you about how I'm just saying how I feel now and adoption at times. I hate it. I hate it. And that's okay. It's okay to have feelings, you know, it's okay to have emotions, but trying to navigate those feelings with his mom is really challenging because just because I hate adoption, it doesn't mean I dislike her right. or dislike that I placed my son. It's I hate the, the at process. times, yeah. I hate the process. Right? Yeah. I hate that it's a, you know, $5 billion, whatever industry. I don't like that, you know, yeah. Yeah. but it, that's like, you know, an open adoption. I mean, we talk, you know, like I said, we're texting on the phone today. What should I get him? Oh, what size? Like what's, what color? Like very open, but trying to navigate the feelings and open adoption yeah. is tricky. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. And although I wrote the book on ad- on being a birth mother, there is no guidebook to adoption because every adoption is different. Yeah. So you're just like, you know, making it up as you go and trying to learn with each, each step. <laughs> yeah. So uh, have you explained I mean, he's only seven, so I'm not sure what level of understanding he would have at seven years of age. And then again, he may be a very intelligent young man uh, or young boy. Uh, I'm curious as to, has there been any explanation and an understanding of that explanation to him? Yeah, so he knows that I'm his birth mom. Okay. You know, he is well aware that I'm his birth mom and, you know, his story is his story to tell someday. But we, he's very aware that he came out of my tummy. He calls me Hopi. Um, you know, that his mom is, is very, very good at, first off, like she's a psychotherapist herself. So she has, you know, enlisted help from other people who are kind of guiding her on how do you have this conversation? When is it too soon? When is, you know, when do you have this conversation? So it's, it's nice to know that he knows Mm -hmm. like he knows who I am. And, you know, at times when I visited, he's told me, well, I want to know you more. I want to know you more so I can get more comfortable around you. But then there's times when he's been, he doesn't want to see me and he doesn't want to talk to me. And I just have to be okay with that. And as he gets older, you know, and, and we have more conversations, like I'm anticipating and I'm, 
mentally preparing since the day I signed that paperwork. <laughs> I'm mentally preparing for the day where he's really angry at me and maybe he hates me or dislikes me or doesn't want me in his life for a little bit. And that, and I think no matter how open adoption is, his mm -hmm. life started with trauma and his life started with the loss. And whether he consciously remembers that he doesn't when he was born, but his body will always remember that. And we're going to have to work on that as thing, as he gets older and ask more questions. And I hope that I'll have all the answers for him. And some of my answers might not be what he is going to want to hear, but that's just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to realize that I can't control his feelings on it. <laughs> His yeah. mom can't, his other mom can't control it. We just have to be there to support him as he learns more and more about his story as he gets older. There you go. Well, I, you know, I find it interesting too, that I've seen, you know, documentaries, television programs, movies where this, uh, this particular scenario plays out. And of course there is that angry period uh, from the child's point of view or the, the, uh, the adoptive, uh, the adopted child. Uh, towards its birth mother and or father. Mm -hmm. And something tells me that there might be a little less anger in this case, because you actually went out of your way to stay in his life in some fashion, even though your personal circumstances, uh, you at that time did not feel you could give him the kind of life that you felt he deserved. You, at least you didn't abandon him outright closed yeah. adoption, never going to see the birth parents period. And we can't release the documentation. We can't tell you the address, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems to me like, even though you gave the, the, the young boy, uh, the, the, the boy up for adoption, you still made a conscious decision that you wanted him to be a part of your life and vice versa, that you wanted to know him and him know you. And something tells me that that's really going to go a, lot, a long way. Would it have been nicer if you'd kept him with you? Sure, probably. But who knows how that would have turned out. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and I also think too, that even though it's, it's been seven years, I also think too, that the relationship that you are going to have with uh, his adoptive mother, I think is also going to uh, grow and get uh, a deeper. And I think maybe even for that reason, because I would like to think that she thinks she views you as someone who uh, made a decision that didn't just, you know, toss him aside and say, bye-bye, yeah. I'm off on, I'm off on my adventure, uh, uh, solo. Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, uh, that's part of what really hurts to a lot of adoptive, uh, people, uh, when they become adults is that the, the mother just gave you, you know, left you at the, at the convent, you know, <laughs> well, in a basket, well, you know, kind hold of thing. on, okay. hold on though. I'll All tell right. you. And okay. these are, so these are sometimes, and I, I've wrote a letter to many people, many writers of movies and shows, Shonda Rhimes, like I'm still waiting for a response. Um, she's actually an adopted mom. Mm -hmm. And if you watch shows like Grey's Anatomy, there is adoption everywhere, mm -hmm. everywhere. Every different type of adoption scenario is played out. 
And I had started to wonder, I'm like, why is adoption so prevalent in the show? Like there's gotta be people, the writers who either were adopted or whatever. Yeah. She's an adopted mom. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I think that there's this big image that birth moms just give their children away and walk away. And when you look at the older days, I mean, it's still close adoption is still happening today. But there's books like um, The Girls Who Went Away, where they talk to birth moms who place their children, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And they're first off, they're a lot of times it's forced by the family. They don't have a choice what mm-hmm. to do. And they they don't, even if they wanted access to their children, they don't know. I talk to birth mothers on a regular basis who are 40, 50, sometimes 60 years old, who have searched for their children. They're since they were born, they have searched and searched and still can't find their kids. And they have no way, zero ways of getting access to where their children are. These like they signed this paperwork because either, you know, they were coerced or they were, you know, unwed at the time their parents forced them. And this is a lot, this isn't just a small amount of adoption. This is a lot of adoption, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, this is what it looked like. And these women are still searching for their children. And I join support groups on a regular basis now. And I've been in support groups where there are 60 year old women who it was their first support group they've ever joined. You know, either maybe they're now reunited with their child after the child, like 30 years. But I, mm-hmm. I don't like that this image gets portrayed. And it's not you, it's, it's everybody. Like people think these things because that is what. TV. And that is what people see adoption as. And I truly don't believe like being a birth mother myself. I don't think that anybody ever places their child and is able to just walk away. They may have a closed adoption or they may not have any contact, but there is no possible way that that birth mom is not thinking about that child. It's it's hard to describe. And, you know, when you think about, and I'm, once again, I'm not someone to compare pain, pain is pain. But when I think about like the death of a child, impossible, how do you go on? But the child's dead. And you know that they are, they passed away. They're no longer existing in this world physically. Now, spiritually different ways, whatever you believe, I support that. But when you place a child for adoption, they exist in a world that you live into, but you can't see them. And and closed adoptions, you can't, you don't, you don't even know what they look like. You mm-hmm. don't even know their name. I had to call my son's mom today to ask her, what does he like? I don't even know his favorite color. Like, I don't know, I don't know anything. We exist in a world, and I I'm given the information that's provided, but I don't know these things. And it's like, they're out there living and you, you can't, you can't touch them or you can't hug them. And you, yeah. you can only see them when you're allowed to, when you're given permission. And, you know, I, I always try to highlight to people like birth mothers are not, it may seem like the abandonment of a child and an adoptee is of course going to feel like that. How could they not? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mm-hmm. would never question an adoptee's feelings on that they are going to feel abandonment and loss and pain their entire life because of a choice that somebody like me made. Mm -hmm. I consciously made that choice. And I, you know, I I did that to him. Yes. I gave him an an opportunity to a better life, 
but because of a choice I made, he's going to, his body will remember that trauma for the rest of his life. So I don't even remember what you asked. <laughs> it's okay. You actually, like, <laughs> you, you actually did address it uh, because you uh, took the, my uh, observations of adoption and uh, corrected them, if you will, or, or put them on the right path there. And, and I do, I do. Uh, um, oh, how can I put this? Uh, first of all, I'm a guy. Second of all, I have never had children, uh, whether giving birth to them or, or having a wife that had children. So I can't relate. Uh, the closest I can put this to, and of course, a lot of people do look at their pets as children, as their I children. I certainly do. When they die, and I still think about uh, my beloved Makushla, who was a beautiful white shepherd uh, a husky mix, um, and she was just the most loving, tender, beautiful uh, girl that, that I, can, I can remember. And when I had to lay her in the ground, I, I have a picture of her on my phone, of course. Um, I have um, uh, a photograph that uh, I put together put on a black mat. And after her passing, we, we put uh, white paint on her paw and we put it on the black mat board uh, all over it as if she'd walked on it. Uh, I even have one of those made out of leather that uh, a friend of ours who is a leather, um, I guess you call him a leather worker, something like that. Leather Smith uh, who took the, the image that we did of, of the paw paw print and etched it into a piece of leather in a heart shape oh. on uh, hanging from the rearview mirror of my truck. So there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about her. And I wish that I had been able to do more. And I wish that I had done things differently or sooner, just as I'm sure you um, maybe even to this day, in spite of the fact that you said, the more you talk about this, the freer you feel, you know, which is great. And I, I applaud you for that. By the same token, I would venture you still have those feelings of, if only I had, if only, if only, if only. Uh, do you do you go through that? Does that that crop up, or have you made peace within yourself, or is that something that you'll have until your dying day? Well, first off, I'm sorry for your loss. I've got a, a husky Sheltie Golden Mix laying on the floor right next to me, and oh, beautiful. yeah. He's He's beautiful. His feet are up in the air right now. Um, <laughs> I know. They love to do that. They do. But, you know, so I, for my dog is my child too. So I, mm -hmm. I totally get that. But I don't know if I will ever be fully at peace with the decision I made. As I say time and time again, I was a woman in crisis and I made the best decision I could with the information I had at the time. Does that mean that some days I don't regret my decision? I would be lying to you if I said I never regret my decision because I do. And when I start to feel that regret, I also start to feel guilty that I feel regret because I don't want any, like I used to think like I don't want his mom to be angry at me because I said that I regret my decision. Do I think it was the best decision at the time? Absolutely. Does it cause me pain every single day that I, I mean, I've had to, so, I mean, some days are unbearable, but I found, you know, little solutions here and there picked up this along the way and this along the way that have helped me survive it and, you know, more than survive now, but I don't think I will ever be at peace with that, with mm -hmm. my decision. 
it was the right decision at the time. And mm-hmm. I don't have regrets with the person who I chose to be his mom. No regrets there. She, if, if I couldn't be his mom at the time and raise him, she was the best person to do it. And I will always believe that, that I will never have a regret in that sense ever. But of course I'm going to have regrets. And I, and I, I, if maybe someday I will make peace with that decision I made and you'll be the first one I call. <laughs> but okay. today at this point in time, I'm, I'm not at peace with my decision, but I'm trying to find peace within my life. Right. Does that make sense? It does. It does indeed. Yeah. Um, I, I, I myself deal with the concept of regret. Uh, I uh, have had some things happen in my life that I wish had gone a little differently. Uh, I've been through a divorce. I didn't like it. Uh, I'm in a second relationship now for over 22 years and wouldn't trade it for the world. As a matter of fact, I basically said when I got into this uh, second relationship, I'm never divorcing again. I will die first. Okay. (laughs) I will do everything in my power to make this work because I don't want to go through that again. It is just too damn hard. Uh, Of course, you know, I kind of said the same thing when my first wife, who was totally blind, came down the gangplank of an airplane after spending a month away at guide dog school, came down the ramp with a black goal, a black Labrador named Yora, Y-O-R-A. And I said, I'm not getting close to that dog. No way, because I know it's going to happen in eight or nine or 10 years. I I just I don't want to deal with that. Oh, it doesn't, that doesn't work. I don't care what you say up front. It does not work. I fell in love with that dog. Uh, and, uh, it was a very sad day when she was sent to, uh, um, to retirement, uh, where she, and this is what they do. They send them to the puppy raisers that raised them as puppies years ago to live out their final year or years. So they give them about 10, eh, maybe 11 years, just depends on how well they're doing. Uh, but I wouldn't trade that. And now with my second wife, uh, we've, I've buried, God, I've lost count of how many animals, dogs, cats, a turtle, uh, a blue tongue skank, which is nothing more than a snake with legs. What the heck? (laughs) And it is actually, it is actually, it actually does have a blue tongue. I kid you not. That's funny. Yeah. That's a funny name. Uh, and we called it, it blue tongue skank. Uh, his name was Xander. Um, and you know, so I've, you know, I've been through this and I, I after I actually say it this way. I hope it never gets easier. I really hope it never gets easier. Um, and so my parents had six of us. All right. To the best of my knowledge, I still have five uh, siblings, a brother and four sisters, and I stay in contact with them. Okay. Um, and, uh, so as far as I know, there wasn't a seventh or an eighth or anything like of that nature. And I think it would have come up anyway. My parents have been very, very honest with us over the years, even as we were growing up, but you know, I never knew too many kids in my school when I was growing up who were adopted, either they were, and they didn't know it because they hadn't been told yet, uh, or they didn't talk about it. 
because you know you see these these uh, scenarios where uh, oh yeah it's the father daughter uh, event and there is no father it's just a single mother who has adopted this child and uh, this this girl and it's like well how are you going to do the father daughter thing you know that you know what i'm saying yeah. there are certain certain events in a child's upbringing that they can no longer they can't participate in uh, because one of the parents isn't there. Um, so it's, it's, and, and raising children, I, I'm, I'm curious, you, you, you have contact, but it's limited. I get that. What do you know, if anything, about his education and, and the kind of education that he is getting? Uh, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, certainly you and I both know, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm 60. So I, I went through the public schools and I went through two years of Catholic school kindergarten and first grade and then public school and a lot of criticism, criticism of public school. All right, fine. Pub criticism. I'm better educated since I got out of school because of the, the work I do in interviewing people and the subjects <laughs> that we talk about. I have an honorary PhD from no university in particular. Um, uh, and uh, yet it's just amazing. So I'm curious as to what you know about his education and are you hoping that you might be able to participate in that particular part of his uh, of his uh, upbringing and his formation yeah so i i do know where he goes to school um when his mom and she actually is a single mom by choice so that's a whole nother layer to everything she's oh, a wow. mom by choice okay yeah um so that you know there's all these different layers <laughs> to a lot of things um, but I do know where he goes to school. So she's very forthcoming with that. And I remember when he was switching to this school, she gave me the pamphlets for the school so I could read up and, you know, see where he was going. And I mean, I, anything that I can do, like I long for seeing a report card or, oh. you know, going to like his graduation. Like I, I hope that I will be included in those, in those days and any way that I can support him going to college or anything like that. I mean, I, I am there to do that. I mean, the person I was seven years ago when I placed is not the person I am today. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I've got a really great job and I obviously wrote a book and all these things. So if there came a time where I was called upon to help, which I never have been, but if I was, I mean, I would, I would do anything to make sure that he can get the best education that is out there possible. And, and so does his mom. I mean, she is a single mom and puts him in, you know, the best schools for, for him and all the things. So I'm glad that that's the type of person she is. And I knew when I placed him with her, that she would be that type of person. So, you know, it's not just school, it's everything. Like I, I have, I literally have dreams about going to, you know, a T-ball game or going to, you know, dramatic, like his, a gymnastics, you know, recital or whatever you do in, in gymnastics. Cause he's in, you know, does all those things. Mm -hmm. Like I dream about those moments of being able to be there and just cheer him on. And I, I really, you know, as he gets older and when he starts, if he starts to ask for me to be there, I will do anything to be there. If I, you know, had to sell a finger, I probably would like, not that I'm in that position now, but if I had to, to be there, cause he calls me and he wants to be there. 
I would do anything. There is not one single thing on this earth that would hold me back from being there when he asked me to be there. Absolutely not a thing. Now, that question five years ago, when I was in the bit of a, a scary, dark place, like there were times when we'd schedule a FaceTime and I did struggle with addiction related to the trauma I was experiencing. And there would be times where I'd miss FaceTimes because I had been up for three days and I didn't want him to see me like that or all these things. So it's not that I've always been the birth mother I am today because I've had my rocky couple years where I, you know, don't feel like I was probably the best birth mom. I was still there, but I wasn't there at the same time. I wasn't the best version of myself, but so yeah, education, all of it. I, gosh, I, I'm going to have a dream tonight, probably about a t-ball game (laughs) and and that's okay. I daydream about it. I, you know, I've got these little journal books everywhere where sometimes I just write, like I am going to go to a t-ball game and I'll write it 20 times. Mm. and try to will it into existence. <laughs> Let me ask you about your upbringing as a child. Uh, tell me about uh, your family relationships uh, as you were growing up and, and what they are like today. Well, yeah, it's always an interesting, interesting topic. <laughs> okay. um, aren't they all? I always yes. used to think my family was crazy and abnormal and everybody was perfect. And then I became an adult and realized, wow, all families are a little screwed up, at least a little. A little. Um, so I'm, I mean, I'm a child of divorce. I, my parents were divorced when I was, what, six or seven years old. And I have a bit of an, you know, an interesting dynamic because my dad is, my dad's actually gay. And so on top of divorce, you know, a couple years later, I think I was about nine or 10, you know, I'm finding out all these things and, you know, there's, there's four of us, four kids at the time. And do you, are you angry or are you, I, 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 you know, my younger years, I'll tell you, there are there are like complete years that I just have no recollection of. And I don't know if it's because maybe something traumatic happened and my brain is kind of pushing that away for right now, Mm -hmm. or things were just too hard. I mean, you know, I was raised for years by a single mom of, you know, she's a single mom of four and she thrived. Let me tell you, she was a thriving single mom, but it wasn't like, I remember there being stress as a kid and, it's not that I didn't have so much love. I mean, as soon as my stepdad came into our life, it was, you know, he's, he's my dad too. I mean, my dad, my biological dad is my dad, but my stepdad also raised me. And I always felt really like really grateful as I came into my teen years that I had two cool dads. Like I had, my stepdad was awesome. And my dad was awesome. Like he drove, he used to live in Arkansas and drove down to every volleyball game, basketball game, dance competition. I mean, he was that type of dad who just showed up like mm-hmm. hell or high water. My dad would be there. He would show up. He was just that type of dad. And, you know, so I was always, I never wanted for anything. I had everything I needed. I mean, gosh, when you're a kid, you're a, I'm not going to swear, but you're sometimes an a-hole to your parents. <laughs> I've since apologized to them. In my, in my adult years, I apologize all the time. They're like, no, like you were a kid. This is the things kids do. I, you know, marched to my own, my own beat. And there you go. I, I've always been like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's what you have to be true to yourself. 
and unfortunately, what happens is we grow up, uh, we get uh, reprogrammed to put on all of these different masks. Uh, mm-hmm. And it sounds in a way, just in, in sort of kind of in a way, uh, that though you have a great relationship with your biological father, uh, when your parents divorced, that had to feel, uh, and again, I'm not saying that you felt like you were to blame for it, but that you were being abandoned by one of your parents because of this divorce, because of this, I'm going off to live my life because I can't live this one kind of thing. Did that, did that ever occur to you? You know, I, I don't remember necessarily as a kid, but I will tell you, like when I think back to those days and I'm, I mean, I'm, I know now that I'm angry about things that happened. I mean, I, I don't like that my dad lied to my mom or cheated on my mom and I'm sure he doesn't like it either. Right. He made poor decisions and I know that he feels remorse for those. So that's fine. But I, I really, I honestly don't remember at the time because I do remember after my mom got divorced, she had a really fun boyfriend for a while. And I think that like the divorce part didn't really start to affect me until I became old enough to understand like why they got divorced. Mm -hmm. And I just always remember like, you know, when you, when you're only with your dad every other weekends or for like sporting things, there's a term my mom coined, coined the glory parent. So I spent many of my younger years being so angry at my mom for like not like just embracing my dad for being there to all these things. And why did she have to call him the glory parent? And then once I realized, oh, wait, like he did some pretty bad things to my mom. You know, he was trying to, unfortunately for him at the time, he was living a life he felt like he had to live and then couldn't do it any longer. I get it. I I just am like, I got more angry about their divorce in my adult years, which is, which is, I think an interesting, an interesting mix, but I was so young at the time too. But like I said, there are years of my childhood that I just don't remember, Mm. but I'll start to have in the last couple of years. And I don't know why I think, you know, I, my dad is in the last five years has really started to struggle himself and, Mm -hmm. He's certainly not the dad anymore that I had all those years. And, you know, life is hard and trauma in life. And sometimes that people succumb to that. And I, I know I've, I've gone through it myself. So I think with this, uh, like, this evolution of who he is now and the changes and the struggles he's facing and like he's struggling with addiction and he's very open about it and, I think I'm now starting to have memories pop up in my head because I'm remembering like arguments or feelings I felt then maybe mm-hmm. it could be abandonment that I'm feeling now again, because I don't have my, my dad on a regular basis anymore. Like yeah. he's, he's not able to be there. And I, I've started to put that together. Like maybe that's why I am starting to remember more of those years because I'm feeling the same feelings now that I felt when I was six or seven, mm-hmm. you know, and like tying the two together, because I don't know if you've ever read this book, but the body keeps score. And I wholeheartedly believe that like, I may not consciously remember trauma or experiences as a child, but my body remembers. So mm-hmm. I'm reminded constantly that when I'm having a familiar emotion, even though I don't think I've been in a familiar situation, 
I probably have. I just, it's, it's unconscious in my brain. Yeah. My body remembers the feeling, but my brain may not for myself. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the reason I bring this up is because I, I, I'm wondering if as you ponder your upbringing, all right, as you consider the, the events of your life, the traumas that you went through, that when your son reaches the age where he's fully consciously aware of what happened, uh, that you put him up for adoption, that you will have some of your own experiences to look upon and say, yeah, I, I can truly feel your pain. Story's different, yes, but I understand it because I, I kind of went through that myself. And yeah. so you are absolutely right. I am not going to discount your personal experience. I would never do that. You're my son. I love you. And I'm hoping that we can work through this. Da, 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 da. And I just really feel that, that when we start doing that, it's kind of the uh, walking a mile in someone's shoes, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel as though that's kind of where uh, you will be when that day comes especially if you're journaling and you're writing a lot of this stuff down, um, you'll, you'll have great, I think you'll have greater empathy for him uh, and what he went through, even though he was, uh, he was an infant, but by the same token, you know, you've been in his life and, and he obviously knows who you are and knows what the deal is. Uh, But then again, our brains, as we grow up, you know, the, the logical thinking, uh, personality ego part of our brain starts to kick in and you know it's almost like a two-year-old mine 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 what do you mean not mine mm-hmm. you know and uh, we start to we start to get upset and and go in that direction i myself uh in on my, my i've talked about my divorce on more than one occasion on this program and there are times when yeah i wish it hadn't happened i wish that we were still together from the standpoint that all the our, all the times that we were together over 15 years weren't horrible okay we had a lot of good times um and and i wish that it had it come out differently i mean my one of my goals when i got married was to try to compete with my parents for their anniversaries well my parents will have been married for 65 years come June of 20. Wow. My dad will be 90 in August of 2021. My mother, uh, 87 wow. in September of 2021. They're doing great. They will not let me come visit and I don't blame them and I don't want to be responsible. But one of the things that I, that I, that occurred to me when you talked about some of the, I'll call them restrictions that you have currently with your, your, uh, biological son, are more severe than any COVID-19 restrictions that, yeah. have placed, that have been placed on us. It would be great if all you had to do was wear a mask and stay six feet apart. Oh my gosh. Sign but, it me would up. Be, but it's more than that. It's more than that right now. But at the same time, you and I both know even that the restrictions or I don't want to say, let's, re, let's rephrase that guidelines. How about that? Guidelines. That- um, abiding by the contract. There you go. Abiding by the contract <laughs> uh, is temporary because obviously exactly. when he turns 18, Hey, so to speak, all bets are off. You can, 
you know, as long as he doesn't, uh, you know, get a restraining order and <laughs> for stalking or something oh, like that. <laughs> don't even put that in the universe, Richard. Take it out. It's out. It's Take out. It out. Erase, 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 erase. Well, you know but what? You know what but you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, right? Totally. Every year yeah. on his birthday, my mom will count down how many years we have left. Oh, and my goodness. Until he's 18. And, and I know that sounds like, wow. But it's really like, I don't know. I used to not see it that way. But my mom is always, you know, it's weird. She was a big, she was a big influencer in my choice for adoption. Because if you remember back, by the time she was 21, she had three kids. She was on her almost her second marriage. Like she didn't want that same life for me. So of course she, you know, wanted better for her baby too, mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. grandbaby and her baby. But my mom always is like, okay, 11 more years, 11 more years until he's free to make decisions on his own. Now, if that decision is not, I want my birth mom in my life as much as possible, I will accept it. I won't get, I won't stalk him, but I will tell you, <laughs> there was times when I, I, I'm in Minnesota now and I was living in California. So he lives in California. When I was in Minnesota, when I placed him, then I moved across the country to Washington, D.C. after college, couldn't stand being so far away from him. So I started a job and they moved me to California shortly after. Mm. I was, what, six hour drive from him. And I started a territory for work where I was in sales, traveling to where he lives on a monthly basis. Mm. And this is kind of stockish, but I used to, I would take an Uber and drive, I wouldn't stop at the park, but I drive past the park that he played in because I wasn't allowed to see him more than two to three times a year. So if I'd hit that allotted amount and I was going to be 20 minutes from him and I still couldn't see him, like, you know, it ate me alive. Like I would just take an Uber and drive, drive past, see if I could catch a glimpse of it. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but when you're in, you know, I was 20 minutes away from him on a monthly basis and couldn't see him. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, you know, so that is, that is probably out of line, but it's, it's what I was called to do at the time. But you were still young. You were still in your twenties and trying to figure out what to do and knowing. I just wanted a glimpse of it. Exactly. 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 Just wanted a glimpse. You know, I mean, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I just think that, that one of the things that is so extraordinary about your story is how it has turned out up to this point. And the story folks is called finding hope, a birth mother's journey into the light. And she shares this story of success, open adoption and all the heartache and light uh, that came along the way. I want to talk a little bit about uh, some more of the light in spite of the, the struggles, hope the struggles with uh, depression and addiction and overcoming the stigma that surrounds uh, uh, birth mothers uh, in uh, giving uh, giving their children up for adoption. Um, also, before we do that, let's give out your website so that people can uh, go to your website and find out more about the work that you are doing, that you have been doing, and the support that you've been giving. Hopeobaker.com. May I ask what the O stands for? Olivia. It's my middle Olivia. name. I like that. Hope Olivia dot uh, Hope Olivia Baker and that's Hope O dot uh, Hope O. 
Facebook.com. I'm in trouble. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the light. Obviously, you've got this beautiful young boy, the seven-year-old, who is in your life. Uh, however, it, however he is in your life, he's in your life. Uh, you get to experience him growing up uh, at, at some level, and uh, uh, you get to have some kind of impact on his uh, uh, on his upbringing just by virtue of your being in his life. I'm not saying you're, you're a disciplinarian or anything of that nature, but just by being in his life, you are having an impact on his life. And uh, that, to me, is a, a wonderful thing. Uh, so can you share with us some other aspects uh, of of this this light as it's as it's referred to uh, in this uh, in this little synopsis I was reading? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I call it like, you know, when we're all going through hard times, sometimes we lean on something that's not so good for us. Right. Mm -hmm. And at the time when things were just really hard, a couple years after I'd placed him and you know, there were struggles between me and his, and his mom and I wanted more contact and I couldn't get it. And there was just times where I couldn't, I couldn't carry the load or I thought that I, I thought I couldn't carry it. And I leaned on drinking and drugs and putting myself in tough situ, you know, maybe not so good situations with men. And, and that, when I look back at that time, I mean, I'm never, you know, I, I'm grateful for the learning from it. I'm I'm sad that I had to go through some of that pain, but it, it has made me the person I am today. But there were moments where, you know, I, I still recall, and if you, you can read it in the book, you know, word for word, what happened, there was a night where I just came off of a bender, right? I was up for a couple of days and all the things, and I'm in the fetal position on my floor. And, and I very, very, very clearly remembering this cannot be my son's story. This cannot mm. be who his birth mom is. This can't be my story. I couldn't, I couldn't have, like, I can't let myself go through what I went through, placing him for adoption, signing that paperwork to end up here on my apartment floor alone after a three-day bender shaking, like, not sure what's happening or if I should call somebody to come help me. Like, and I, I think in that moment, like, there's something that just flipped where I didn't have a choice. It was, if I continue on that path, I, I won't be alive. And, and he deserves better than that. And I deserve better than that. I deserve better than that. And, you know, there were many things that happened after that moment that just, I started to see positive things. And I think at times when we're in negative headspaces, and even still today, when I'm in a negative headspace, all I see is bad things everywhere like there's no light there's no good and I think when I made when I had that thought in my head like this can't be our story I started to see positive things I saw a couple people speak a couple women and women in leadership and sales and all of this and I really heard them like I'd been to tons of those and heard women speak but these women like I really heard what they were saying and thought wait a second this could be my life I could do this. And Reese Witherspoon, like she's always just been, you know, I loved Legally Blonde. I'm that person. And I, I saw her do a speech. It was a glamour of the year. I think it was like 2015. I was watching a recording of it. It might've been live. And she's talking and I'm like, my God, like I am a powerful woman. I have the power to change my life. 
I can do this. And I started going to therapy. I started reading affirmation cards. I started reading books and I made my life more about becoming the person who I want to be and who I deserve to be and who my son deserves to be rather than the person who's just trying to freaking make it to the next day or trying to forget what I did, that conscious choice I made to place my son in another person's arms. Like I can't forget that. And I think the biggest thing that led me to my light was acknowledging that pain is pain. It is okay to be in pain. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to shove it down. It is okay to feel your pain. It's okay to feel it out loud. That is how you heal. And when I finally gave myself the freedom to say, okay, I can't get out of bed in the morning without crying. I want to drink. I want to, you know, do cocaine. I want to do these things. Like that was my drug of choice. Like when I finally realized that it's okay to say, I am so sad. I need help or I'm feeling this and I, I need help. Like giving myself the freedom to feel pain and to actually admit that I was in pain, put me on a whole different trajectory. Like the hope today you see in front of your face, I just joined the board of directors at a nonprofit for birth mothers. I have a great job. I'm looking at promotions at work. I've got a beautiful dog. I've got like the hope I am today. If I would, if you would have told me this five years ago, this is where I would be. I would have probably laughed because I was just in this dark place. Mm -hmm. And I think once I started to see the good things rather than the bad, yes, life can be crappy at times, but on the other side of that, if you look for the good things every day, they're there. There are good things that happen every day and good things that are going on. Sometimes when you're in a darkness, you just can't see it. So starting your day, even if it's a really crappy day or you wake up not feeling good, starting by saying, I am so grateful I opened my eyes this morning. Something as little as that statement yeah. can truly change your life. And making those statements of gratitude all day long even if you don't believe them. I used to not believe that. I used to not believe those things, but I set them until finally my mind was like, oh, wait, you are happy today. Mm -hmm. You're not lying to yourself. You are actually happy. Like you're not tricking yourself into this. You actually are having a really great day and you're really happy. And it took time. And I think still today, like, you know, there's times where I spent, you know, a couple months ago, I spent, a couple weeks on the couch because I had got, I left my fiance, I'd moved here and I started to recover from all this. And I'm like, I'm depressed. I'm going to sit on the couch and see the bad and everything. And I snapped myself out of it. Like, hold on. What happened to these last <laughs> four years of work you put into yourself, like snap out of it. And of course, you know, therapy and all these things help, but yeah. I, I truly believe that the two biggest things a person can do if they're feeling pain is to first acknowledge it, not be afraid to say it out loud to somebody you trust or a therapist or, you know, an online group anonymously, like acknowledging your pain and then changing your language. Life, even in its darkest times, is still beautiful. Yeah. It's still it's still it's still beautiful. It's yeah. just tricking your mind into actually believing that. But to trick your mind into believing it, you have to say it. You got to repeat it 5,000 times and over again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the chapters in my book on choices. And that is uh, match your words to your choice. 
and and uh, that's that's extremely important. And a lot of us don't do that. I I, I still catch myself every once in a while being a little bit self-deprecating. Uh, I knew a guy who was who was that way, both on the air as well as off. I used to be in the building when he was in the studio recording his news, and when he'd make a mistake, there was virtually screaming and yelling. He was in the room and he was screaming and yelling at himself how stupid and swearing and on and i thought wow calm down buddy put that energy into something more more positive or what have you but you know that's where a lot some people are they're in that dark space Mm -hmm. and and, uh by the same token uh in addition to going through it and that's what you have to do as you said uh, it's some. It's a part of you that you do have to acknowledge exists because it's exactly. part of what has made you who you are today and having all of the wonderful things that you have today that you've already listed. And yeah. uh, I think that that's, that is a testament to someone who has been through the fire, if you will, or the darkness, if you will, uh, reached, as, as uh, Robert Bly in Iron John says, you have reached your catabasis or the bottom of the bottom. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there is no other direction, but up. Yeah. You can't go any lower than you are. And now guess what? You get to go up. And, well, uh, on, on that token, I mean, I wish that we lived in a society that didn't feel like you had to hit rock bottom before you could get help. I mean, I know with, you know, working, you know, cause like I said, my dad is, is a struggling drug addict and it's pretty, it's pretty bad. And everybody keeps saying, just, you got to let him hit rock bottom. You got to let him hit rock bottom. Cause he won't be ready to get help. And I'm like, why do we live in a society that it's telling us like, let him almost die or lose everything, which he already mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. before we should help him. Like, and I feel like that's, but that's what, that's what we think we, we need to do. Like people have to hit rock bottom in well, order I think for them to be aware that yeah. they need help. But I think there's another part to that and, and why that exists. And that is that it doesn't matter how much help we give someone, if they're not ready for it, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, you, you hear these stories all the time uh, of, of families that, uh, that will uh, that they know that their son or their daughter is is let's just say into drugs, and they want to help them. Is well, mom and dad, this will be the last time. And of course, many times they will believe that, and they'll give them the money and so forth. And and then of course it gets worse and worse and worse. And they eventually have to make the decision to say, tough love time. No, no more. Yep. If you want more, here's what you're going to have to do to get it. And yep. uh, maybe it's rehab or what have you. But I think that it really comes down to until the, as the, and this is the quote that I I hear quite often in these kinds of situations. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I love that. Until the one who wants help really wants help, the helper will not come. When they finally do really want help, the helper will be there. And I think that's really what we need to do is we need to be ready to be there uh, and more, more than anything else, uh, because we can't force people to change, uh, which is real interesting because the constant in the universe is change, which is the one thing we fight more than anything else in the world. 
Uh, and and that uh, could not be. That's probably the most true thing I've heard in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally, that is probably the most true thing I've heard in a long time. Well, it's and it and the thing is, is that the universe is in total motion at all times, both the, mm -hmm. the macro or universe, as well as the micro, the subatomic on the subatomic level. Everything is moving right now. I sat as a seven year old in mass one Sunday and I tried to blink twice as fast as I could to have two identical blinks. About drove myself nuts. And then I began to process thinking, oh, wait a minute, hold on a second. I, I can't, it's impossible. There's no way that I could have two identical blinks of the eye because the universe is in total, it's in utter motion. Every cell yeah. in my body is in motion. And from one blink to the next, things have moved. So nothing's the same from one to the next. And it was kind of then that I, I said, let it go. And I, I, I got out of my crazy uh, blinking phase there. Uh, but <laughs> it's one of those things that, that I share with people. It's like, come on, we awe over the universe's movements and the supernovas exploding and comets and meteors flying through and asteroids flying through the air, hopefully not hitting the earth, but running into other stuff. And we just sit there like it's the 4th of July going, Ooh, ah, and sometimes when we're looking through the telescope at the subatomic level of the same kinds of things happening, the cells are moving around and dividing and then one envelops the other and on and on and on. Wow, that is awesome. But when that kind of stuff happens on this level where you and I live, oh, there's no oohing and aahing. There's either, ah, out of fear or, oh man, that was great out of out of bliss and joy whereas the universe there's no judgment in all of this movement in the macro just world there's no judgment. just us just us mm -hmm. so um that's uh, that's that's part of it there we are talking with hope o baker she has a website hopeobaker.com she has a book of course she does she has a book <laughs> And we <laughs> and uh, she does, and we say that uh, kindly and gently, and all of the good things, because we want you to get a copy of her book, uh, which is Finding Hope. That's right, Finding Hope. We hope that you will pick up a copy of her her latest work. It's this is your first book, is it not? Yes. Do you first see, of many? First, I was just going to ask you uh, if there will be a sequel of sorts. Uh, uh, it has to be along the same lines. Uh, just carrying on the story uh, and get, just kind of keeping people, uh, keeping people updated about a birth mother's journey into the light. There has to be a second book because let me tell you, as I evolve and as I learn, lots of things change. So I'm I'm ready to start in the next year or so on the second one. Oh, very good. Well, twenty 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 one is going to be a great year. I will be uh, quite honest with you. 2020 was not so bad uh, from, from again, and this is all based upon my personal observation. You know, I'm not saying that it was, was, it wasn't hard for a lot of people. It wasn't challenging. It sure was, but it opened up the eyes of people to number one, to our vulnerabilities, but it also opened up our eyes to opportunities that mm -hmm. we didn't even know existed. I mean, you know, I, I, that to me was the greatest gift that this virus gave us was those opportunities. 
Uh, and uh, people took advantage of them. People stepped up. This is another beautiful thing. Uh, it, it, it's sort of sad in one sense that we have to wait until a crisis happens before we step up to help our fellow man and woman and child. But at least we do that. And people did that. I mean, you know, we didn't have the PPE at the first responders location. So people started making it, making them out of whatever they had, uh, you know, until the, the manufacturers sort of caught up. I mean, it was just in, and a whole new industry has been born over uh, custom masks, you know. Uh, it's just incredible what has happened. And that's just one small area. These programs that I am doing now are on YouTube. They weren't before, even though I was recording the video, uh, for example, and taking stripping the audio from it for the radio and podcast. Now we're on, on YouTube. Uh, um, and, and so, you know, hope this is, it's incredible what has happened in the year 2020. Uh, not necessarily easy, but, but certainly, uh, I love Einstein's uh, comment about uh, uh, insanity. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, this time we did something different, which means that when we come out the other side, it's going to be different. Whether we like it or not, it's a whole nother issue. But the fact is, it's going to be different. And yep. to me, that's exciting. That really is. Uh, and it can be. And it's like you said, you said this, if you look for the light, you look for the good, you will find it. When I was working for the Christian station, they were always looking for the devil. And guess what? They were finding the devil. Absolutely. And so when you look for the good, you look for God, you're going to find him, her, it, and the good. <laughs> uh, it's, it's exciting. Hope O. Baker, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. This has just been a lot of fun. And I thank you for being so open and honest about uh, what you've been through. Uh, I'm excited for the prospects for you and your son and your son's other mother. And uh, I think that that's kind of cool that he's got two moms, you know? Yeah. I think that's Lucky very good cool. to have two moms. Absolutely. You know, and I, he's going to turn out really, really great. And uh, I thank you for sharing your story with us, uh, Finding Hope. Again, a birth mother's journey uh, into the light, uh, to the light. And, and we are going to link to your website so that people can uh, continue to find out more about you and the work that you are doing, uh, even find out about this nonprofit that you are now on the board of and, yep. and uh, more work in regards to adoption. You know that, it, yes, it is an option. Thank goodness it's available. And quite honestly, uh, you know, I'm not telling people not to have kids, but you know, why have another kid when you could adopt someone who needs a home, who needs a well, loving family, you know? You know, there's a lot of children sitting in foster care right now in the U.S. foster care system who need, who need families, who need somebody to love them and to nourish them and to nurture them. And yeah, yeah. there are a lot of, you know, forget about the infant adoptions. I mean, that's needed too. But gosh, our foster care system, there are so many kids who need we need a family. They need a family. They need a, a permanent, a final home, as it were. Yeah. And I'm hoping that folks will uh, heed the call, heed your call to, to do just that, to, to adopt uh, through the foster program. 
And uh, again, I thank you so much for joining us. I do have three final questions that I do want to ask you. But uh, before I do that, I want to remind our listeners that we're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. Along with the podcasts at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry and other locations that you are reposting our interviews to. We're also on YouTube, so now you can watch the interviews and enjoy those as you uh, maybe surf the internet, going to um, to uh, hopeobaker.com uh, to find out more about the work that she is doing. If you can support us it, and this resonates with you, please uh, do what you can. That's why we have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. And definitely sit down, take some time, get out in nature if you can, relax and go within. Spend some time during the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, because um, you can use that time again to refocus and recenter and and get the guidance that we all are looking for uh, from within, listening to that still small voice. All right, so now we go to the three final questions, which you might have answered during the program, but I like to ask them directly uh, for our listeners. And the first of the three questions is, who is Hope Olivia Baker? Who is Hope Olivia Baker? Well, that's a loaded question, Richard. Um, (laughs) You know, today I would say that I am, you know, I'm many things. I'm a birth mom. I'm a dog mom, I'm a sister, I'm a friend, I'm a businesswoman, I'm an evolving human. And every day trying to do at least one thing and maybe sometimes more to, you know, be the better version of myself, to do better than I did before. And I, I work really hard in life to try to, you know, make an impact. And sometimes I try too hard and <laughs> I have to, you know, slap myself on the wrist. Not everybody wants to wants the hope baker help, helping hand. You gotta leave people alone sometimes. Um, yeah, I think I'm a lot of things. I don't like being put in one bucket because I'm not just a birth mother and I'm not just, you know, a businesswoman or I'm not just this. I'm a lot of things wrapped into one. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? The biggest thing I want to achieve with my main focus about, you know, advocating for birth mothers is I don't want birth mothers to have to search for their children. I don't want birth mothers to not know their children's names or not know what they look like or not even know what state they live in or if they're dead or alive. I I really want to work on the education piece with hopeful adoptive parents and agencies and work with foundations like on your feet foundation abiding love you know lifetime healing all of these organizations that are working so hard to educate adoption agencies hopeful adoptive parents and even adoptive parents who have already adopted about how powerful openness can be and i think you know the pain that i've heard from birth mothers of not knowing is the worst the worst, some of the worst stories I've ever heard in my, in my life of, of mm. all the traumas I've heard. I mean, trauma is trauma, pain is pain, but not knowing your child's name and if they're dead or alive is, I hope to in the future that doesn't exist in adoption. Mm. And, you know, birth mothers can get the support that they need and the, for the pain that they have. I mean, that 
those are the two goals with my work is to, I don't want birth mothers to feel alone. I want them to be supported and educated. And I want them to know their children's names and if they're dead or alive and have access to their birth certificate that had their original birth certificate. These are basic things that no human should not know about their child, regardless if they place them or not. And finally, what is your life's purpose? It's a good question. I think when I think about my why and I think about the motivation for everything I do, it's at the end of the day, I believe it's my son. And now, you know, I believe it's my dog as well. Like I know the dog thing, people like laugh me all the time, but I want to create a better world for my son. Like, I want to make an impact that will create a better world for him. I want him to know that the conscious decision that I made seven years ago and as time goes on was for, you know, I did something with my life and I'm someone he can be proud of. And I, I crave that. And I think every day I try to live up to that expectation. What can I do today to make him proud of me? How can I impact this world that he's going to be growing up in? And that's, and I keep like looking at his picture next to me. That's think that's my purpose. And that's my why is everything I do needs to have that in focus. Now, I actually do have another question that comes out of your last dancer. And uh, I'm just curious, are you proud of you? I am today. And, you know, I think there's some days where I'm not proud of myself. And I think we all maybe feel like that. And I, most days now I can tell you that I am proud of myself. I'm proud of the person who I've become and the, the, like just the struggles I've been able to overcome and, and somehow, some way the universe answered what I needed. And I'm here today living a life that I am proud of. And I, sh and sometimes I think I shouldn't be here. And I think about the opportunities I've had and, you know, you can call it luck, but luck is really just being prepared for opportunities, right? That's what I mm -hmm. truly think luck is, but I am proud. I'm proud of what I've overcome. And I'm proud that I get to sit here with you today, talking a book about a book that I wrote about the darkest time that I went through and somehow I made it out. Not everybody makes it out and I'm proud. Yes, I am proud. I'm proud of myself, Richard. I'm proud. Wonderful. <laughs> I'm proud of you too. 20 times. <laughs> uh, I'm proud of the fact that you made it out. And now that you know how to get out, you are here to help others to do the same. And uh, we're excited about that as well. And again, we thank you so much for giving us so much time here on the program. This has been a wonderful hour. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. And I want to thank you for listening and watching. Tell me your story, New Paradigms for a New World giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol.